A big hello, everyone, and welcome to the launch of the 2018 edition of the Energy Outlook. We've got a full auditorium here in London, and I believe we have now over 11,000 sites linked up on the website. So good morning, good evening. We have people on the, on the line from Canada to China. So a big welcome to London. Thank you for your interest. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us. I know how busy we all are right now. Uh, I think for I, everyone I talk to, six weeks into the year, it feels more like six months everywhere. I was in Cairo last week where we just started up our first major project of the year. We're producing gas from a field called Atoll to power homes and businesses in Egypt less than three years after making the discovery. And if you're not in the oil and gas industry, you may not know it, but that's really fast from discovery to production. Our industry is really moving fast too. And it feels like we used to have more time to think and to plan, didn't we? Everybody tells me that as well. Whereas now, understandably, we're all preoccupied with the day-to-day -day and future gazing may therefore seem a little bit like a luxury. But it's important to look ahead to the bigger picture. And that's the beauty of the energy outlook. It's why we asked Spencer Dale and his economics team to take the time to think about and ponder, reflect, consider the trends that may shape the future energy landscape. Professor one time at um, Caltech in Berkeley said to me, to have a good organization, you have to have good people, you have to give them tools, and you've got to give them the time to think. And it's always made me think, are we giving people enough time to think? That says, you'll hear from Spencer in a moment, we don't pretend that the outlook provides all the answers. But it does give us insight into the direction of travel, and it's a great gift to have. As you'll also hear, we've made a few changes to keep improving the outlook's contribution to our understanding. <coughs> One of those is to look a little bit further ahead, this year out to 2040, which extends our view of the landscape over now over two decades. And I'd like to thank Spencer Dale and his team of economists and the many contri contributors to the report, and many of you are on the line as well. He and his team have once again produced a first-class publication that I hope readers will find useful. I'll hand over to Spencer in a few moments for his overview of the findings. I should say some of the findings because, as you'll see, there's even more information packed into this year's report than usual. First, though, I'll very briefly set the scene by outlining the three main themes that struck me when I read the report. And the first one is just the speed of the transition that's underway. I mentioned how fast the industry is moving right now, and it will continue to change as government policies, technologies, and social preferences change and alter the way in which energy is produced and consumed in the future. Predicting to a degree of certainty how these changes will turn out is tricky business. It's why this year's outlook will consider a number of different scenarios, six in fact, it laid all of our under overall understanding of the uncertainties that we face as a company. I hope it will for you as well. The second theme is that competitive, competitive pressures within global energy markets continue to intensify as demand for energy continues to grow. However, technological advances mean our ability to produce energy is growing even faster be that in unconventional oil and gas or in renewables like wind and solar energy. 
The continuing rapid growth of renewables means that in a couple of decades, we can expect the fuel mix to be the most diverse ever seen. This combination of diversity and abundance is going to mean the marketplace will be highly competitive for some time to come. I firmly believe the focus on efficiency, reliability, and a very disciplined approach to cost and capital is here to stay in our industry. My third observation is that the speed of change and the diversification of the fuel mix is having a significant impact on carbon emissions. The evolving transition scenario, it's one of the six, Spencer will outline, which assumes policies, technologies, and preferences evolve in a manner and speed seen over the recent past, suggests that the growth in carbon emissions is slowly slowing markedly. Now, that's the rate of growth, and that's good news. However, the slowing falls well short of the sharp drop in carbon emissions thought necessary to achieve the climate goals set out in Paris. So there's a lot more to do. The outlook also shows that policies focused on specific fuels and technologies around renewables and EVs are unlikely to be sufficient on their own. As I tell almost every audience I speak with, we need to remember that a race to renewables will not be enough to meet the Paris goals, nor will it keep the world moving. The race needs to be to lower emissions. So we should be agnostic about fuels and focused instead on reducing emissions. What's needed is a comprehensive approach that encourages both improvements in how efficiently we use energy, as well as the continuing shift to a lower carbon fuel mix. In BP, we continue to believe that carbon pricing must be a key element of any such approach as it provides the incentives for everyone, whether that's producers and consumers alike, to play their part. So those are the three themes that I took away from this report, the speed of the transition, the intensifying competition, and most importantly, the need to keep downward pressure on carbon emissions. While no one can say exactly how these trends will play out, the outlook can help manage the uncertainties ahead to ensure we are fit and ready to play our role in meeting the energy needs of tomorrow. It means we need to be ready to meet society's demand for more energy, and we should be proud of that effort, as it will help to lift billions more people out of low incomes. But as we do this, we need to continue adapting and working together to play our part in achieving the transition to a lower carbon energy system. That's our dual mission, and I'm confident this industry is up to the challenge. I know BP is up for it, and I hope you find this energy outlook a useful contribution to our discussions today and for those where you are around the world, and think about it in the subsequent actions you take. Over to you, Spencer. Thank you, Bob, and good afternoon, um, everyone. Let me add my thanks to everybody for sparing the time to come to today's launch of this year's uh, Energy Outlook. Everybody here in, in St. James, London, looking around, there's lots of familiar faces. Thank you all very much for sparing the time again. And also um, around the world um, via the web, as Bob said, we've got a record number of people um, registered today. Uh, thank you very much. Please stay with us. Um, I'll let you into a secret. The really good bits come right at the end, so don't leave. So don't leave before the end. 
And please do send in your questions. So if you hear me say something interesting, even better. If you hear me say something um, which sounds wrong, it most probably is, write in um, with the, the, your fleshes, questions flash up on the screen and we will um, try and answer as many as we can um, during the Q&A session. Um, also take this opportunity just to thank everybody in BP involved in producing the outlook over the last few months. That obviously involves um, the rest of the economics team, many of them here today, and many of them also watching via the web. Um, thank you guys, uh, a busy last couple of months, but hopefully um, worth it. But the idea of the economic of the energy outlook is, is it doesn't just focus on economics, it tries to do a more holistic view of all the factors affecting global energy markets, um, technology, commodity markets, upstream, downstream, across the regions. And to do that, we try and pull in insights from across uh, the whole of the BP family. So this is very much a team uh, BP effort. So thank you very much to everyone um, involved. And if I may, I just a particular thank you uh, to Robert Spicer and Aisha Dulliwell, who work in the downstream strategy part of BP. And they've worked with us incredibly closely over the last couple of months, working on the work we've been doing on EVs, and electric cars and new mobility. More on that, in fact, much more on that work uh, later, but a special thanks to Robert um, and Aisha for all the work that you've done with us. Thank you. Um, before jumping into the detail, particularly for sort of seasoned watchers um, of the Energy Outlook, I wanted to mention and pick up on some of those changes that Bob mentioned we've made to the, the, to the format and structure of this year's Outlook, three in particular. First, as Bob said, we've extended the outlook for five more years, so we're now going out to 2040. So looking ahead, 24, 25 years or so. And this has a benefit of bringing into sharper focus some features of the energy transition, which are more of a blur if you look ahead to only 2035. Second, we've tried to focus even more this year on the range of possible paths and outcomes the energy transition may take. As I fear I've bored many of you um, in the past, the value of forecasting is not to try to predict the future. Any point forecast will be wrong. Rather, the value of exercises such as the energy outlook is to understand better the nature of the uncertainty we face and the key judgments and issues which really shape that uncertainty. So in particular, in this year's outlook, we consider six or seven alternative scenarios designed to explore a series of what-if questions relating to the energy transition. The scenarios vary in terms of their implications for both energy demand and the fuel mix, shown here on the left-hand chart, and as a consequence, the implied path for carbon emissions, shown on the right. Now, don't worry about looking at all these scenarios in detail at this stage. I will come back and look at all of them um, over the next 40 minutes um, or so. We also no longer have a base or central case. The probability of any single scenario materialising is negligible. Remember, any point forecast will be wrong. That's always been the case, but I fear not always fully understood, and I was, I was worried that the use of a base case just confused that even more. However, for, for the ease of explanation, much of the presentation today and in the booklet is framed around what we call the evolving transition scenario, or ET scenario. Now, <laughs> before you ask, no. 
the ET, the ET scenario has nothing to do with cute creatures from outer space. Sorry. Rather, the idea of the, um, the evolving transition, the ET scenario, is to consider the broad path the global energy system might evolve along if government policies, new technology and social preferences continue to change in a manner and speed seen over the recent past. A sense, if you like, of the broad path we're all travelling along absent a shock to either technology or policy. To be clear, this is not a business-as-usual case. The world of energy is very different today to what it was 10 or 20 years ago, and the forces giving rise to those changes are assumed to continue in the ET scenario. Indeed, in many dimensions, the pace of change has been increasing in recent years, and we've tried to build that acceleration into the scenario. But just to repeat, just with all the other scenarios, the likelihood of the ET scenario materialising exactly as projected is tiny. The third change we've made to this year's format is to look at the forces shaping the energy transition through three distinct lenses or windows. So energy by sector, by region and by fuel, shown here for the ET scenario. Viewing the change in behaviour and energy needs of the world from each of these perspectives helps, well, I hope it helps, to shed light on the underlying forces shaping the transition, how energy is used, where it's used, and in what form. The how, where, and what of energy. And I will come back to these three windows in a moment. But before I do, just to summarise the economic backdrop underpinning the outlook, and this is common across all of the scenarios we, we consider. Global GDP is projected to grow by around three and a quarters percent on a PPP basis, which you can see here, it's pretty much broadly in line with the world growth over the last um, 25 years, with global GDP more than doubling by 2040. Some of this growth is driven by increases in population, but around three quarters is driven by increases in productivity shown by the dark orange segments here, particularly in fast-growing and um, developing economies. And you can see the importance of productivity in, for example, China, where it's all productivity growth which is driving growth, and in India, where productivity growth is driving the vast majority of that growth. <coughs> Increases in productivity, output per head, translates into increasing prosperity, income per head. And as a result, more than two and a half billion people, a third of the world's current population, are lifted from low incomes by 2040. The increasing prosperity of the developing world is one of the most important forces shaping economic and energy trends over the next 25 years. If we go back to my three energy windows, my how, where and what, and I'm going to focus on the next few slides on the um, evolving transition scenario, the increase in global activity and prosperity causes energy demand to increase by about a third by 2040. That equates to an annual average growth rate of around 1.3%. So quite a bit slower than the 2% or so seen um, averaged over the past 25 years, reflecting quickening gains in, in energy efficiency. The ever-increasing ability of the world to produce more with less energy is another key force shaping the energy landscape over the coming decades. In terms of the, the different perspectives, I'm afraid I only have time today to give you a brief glimpse 
behind the curtains of each window today. But I'm hoping that this quick peek behind the curtains will unleash enough of the nosy neighbour in you for you to want to look at, for the full story in the Energy Outlook booklet. You can get the booklet, um, that you can download, download, download that free of charge from bp.com. And for those of you here in the room today in London, there's a copy waiting for you to pick up um, when you leave. So if we briefly look, first of all, behind um, the, the curtains of the sector window. <laughs> no expense spared at BP, I tell you. <laughs> Where growth of energy demand is broad-based across all sectors, industry, buildings and transport. Industry is a major consumer of energy. It accounts for around half of all energy consumed today and around half of the growth over the outlook. Within industry, the non-combusted use of fuels, particularly as a feedstock in petrochemicals, is the fastest growing source of demand, shown by the light blow bars here on the right. Now, the ET scenario assumes that increasing environmental pressures on the use of some petrochemical products, particularly single-use pl plastics and packaging, dampens growth. But even so, the non-combusted use of oil and gas is the largest contributor to their growth in the latter part of the outlook. So the use of oil and gas as a feedstock rather than a source of energy becoming the main driver of their growth. The growth of energy used in buildings, shown here on the left, is concentrated in Asia, Africa and the Middle East, which together account for around 90% of the growth of energy used in buildings. The point to note here is that the relatively warm climate covering much of these regions, Asia, Africa, Middle East, means there is little new demand for heating. Rather, the majority of the demand is for air conditioning as well as for additional lighting and appliances. As a result, almost all of the increase in energy consumption in buildings over the next 25 years is in the form of electricity, shown by purple a good example of whether how energy is used really matters. The right-hand chart here shows the growth of energy used in transport, which slows sharply relative to the past. This is a good example of that doing more with less trend I mentioned a moment ago. In the ET scenario, global demand for both passenger and freight services more than doubles, but this is largely offset by improving efficiency, this purple bar here. Such that energy used within the transport increases by only about 25% over the outlook, much slower than in the past. If we go back to the three energy windows again, and in this time, if we look through the middle regional window, as may be quite familiar to many of you, all of the growth in energy consumption is in fast-growing developing economies, driven by the increasing prosperity and improving living standards I mentioned earlier. Energy demand within the OECD, shown by the green bars here, is essentially flat over the outlook. It's important to remember that plentiful supplies of energy enable this increase in prosperity. Without access to secure and affordable energy, the improvement in global prosperity and living standards would be severely stunted. That's one half of the dual challenge facing the global energy system that Bob just mentioned. The other half of the challenge is to provide energy in a sustainable way, 
taking account of the, of the implications for the environment and climate. More energy, less carbon. And I'll come back to carbon emissions later. As shown by the two blue charts on, on the uh, two, two blue bars um, on the right here, China and India are the biggest growth markets for energy, each accounting for around a quarter of the increase in global energy demand, with India showing the light blue bar overtaking China as the main engine of growth from the early 2030s onwards. And as you can see, Africa, shown here in red, um, starts to play a meaningful role in driving energy demand towards the end of the outlook. That's one of those features of the energy, energy transition which comes into sharper focus once you take by going out to 2040. As the global pattern of energy consumption changes, difference in the fuel mix across regions has an important bearing on the energy landscape. The two main centres of growth, China and India, both start with relatively coal-intensive um, energy systems. In the ET scenario, China's coal intensity declines sharply, with coal consumption falling in outright terms. You can see that, that grey bar getting smaller. The fall in China's coal consumption is more than offset by a large rise in renewable energy, with re renewables overtaking oil as the second largest energy source in China by 2040. A quite remarkable transformation. In contrast, India's coal consumption increases more in line with its overall energy demand, such that, such that the share of coal within India's fuel mix falls only slightly. Turning finally um, to, the, um, to the final window on the energy transition in terms of how different sources of energy are evolving over time, the what of energy. In the ET scenario, renewable energy in orange is the fastest growing source of energy, accounting for over 40% of the increase in energy supplies, with its share in primary energy increasing from 4% today to around 14% by 2040. Natural gas, in red, grows much faster than either oil or coal, or coal, overtaking coal and converging on oil by the end of the outlook. In contrast, global coal consumption essentially flatlines over the outlook, with its share falling to its lowest level since the Industrial Revolution. The rapid growth in renewables means in the ET scenario, we are heading for the most diversified fuel mix the world has ever seen, with oil, gas, coal and non-fossil fuels, each providing roughly around a quarter of the world's energy. As Bob mentioned, this increasing diversity will further add to competitive pressures within global energy markets. That's all I, all I have time to say today about these three different perspectives on the energy transition, the how, where and what. As I said, I hope your curiosity has been sufficiently piqued that you do want to look behind the curtains in full, and, and, and you can do that by downloading uh, the full Energy Outlook booklet. What I want to do for the rest of today's presentation is explore some of the issues and uncertainties highlighted in this year's outlook by considering five questions relating to the energy transition. 
What have we learned about electric cars and the mobility revolution? When is global oil demand likely to stop growing? Just how fast will renewable energy grow? How resilient is the outlook for natural gas? And is the transition to a lower carbon energy system happening fast enough? So starting first with what have we learned about electric cars and the mobility revolution? I pose the question in this way since it feels, well, at least it feels to me, like we're all very much still learning about the best way to think about and analyse these issues. As such, the analysis in this year's outlook is, is very much offered in the spirit of, of our work in progress at the moment. One area in which our thinking has moved on is how best to measure the penetration of electric cars in the passenger car market. Almost all the current discussion on commentary on electric cars is centred around how quickly the number of electric cars will increase. Will the, stock of increase of, uh, will the stock of electric cars reach 200, 300, 400 million cars by 2040? But there are two problems with this focus on the number of electric cars. First, it treats all electric cars the same. But that's clearly wrong. A pure electric car, a pure battery electric car, is powered solely by electricity. In contrast, a plug-in hybrid electric car is powered by a combination of electricity and oil. Very roughly, you can think of a plug-in hybrid today as being half-powered by electricity and half-powered by oil. Simply adding battery EVs with plug-in hybrids is comparing apples and oranges, hence the different colours. <laughs> the second problem with focusing only on the number of EVs is that it takes no account of the different intensity with which electric vehicles might be driven, especially as shared mobility increases. If there are, say, 300 electric vehicles on the road, but they are driven twice as much as conventional cars, that's more akin to having 600 million EVs on the road. So the, the approach followed in the outlook is rather than focusing on the number of EVs, is to consider the share of vehicle kilometres, VKMs, powered by electricity. That measure, the share of VKMs powered by electricity, takes account of both these problems, the different types of electric car and the intensity with which they are driven. Great, Spencer, very good. That's a good way of measuring things. But does this matter? It matters a lot. In the ET scenario, the share of EVs in the global car park the number-based measure here on the left reaches around 15% or so by 2040. 300 million cars or so in a car park of almost 2 billion. But the share of passenger car VKMs powered by electricity is over 30%, twice as much. The share of passenger VKMs powered by electricity is shown in the, in the purple bar in this chart. The key driver of this greater penetration, i.e. 30% rather than 15%, reflects the interaction of EVs with shared mobility and autonomy. So just to be clear up front here, by shared mobility, I'm focusing here on the ownership of the car. So where shared mobility refers to travelling in a car which is not privately owned by that individual. So that includes conventional taxis, 
ride-hailing services like Uber or Lyft, or any form of car rental. They all count as shared mobility. In the ET scenario, fully autonomous cars start to become available from the early 2020s. But the high cost of that technology means, in the first instance, they are largely purchased by companies offering shared mobility services, rather than by individual families or households. The cost saving associated with, with no longer having to pay for a driver, which could reduce cost, total cost by as much as 40 or 50%, leads to a surge in the importance of kilometres driven by shared mobility autonomous cars in the 2030s, shown by this light blue bar here um, on the right-hand side here, which is showing you the growth of kilometres driven by shared mobility um, autonomous cars. Importantly, and here's a link to electric cars, the relatively low running cost of electric cars compared with conventional internal combustion engine cars means the vast majority of these shared autonomous and more intensely used cars are electric. Substantially boosting the share of VKMs powered by electricity relative to measures focusing simply on the number of EVs. Measured in this way, roughly half of the increasing penetration of electricity in the car market reflects the growing number of EVs, and half the increasing intensity with which they are driven. And the game changer for intensity is autonomy. So what does this mean for oil and other liquid fuels used by cars? This is shown in this next chart here, which you read from left to right. Passenger cars currently use around 19 million barrels a day of liquid fuels, so around 20% of the total liquids market. Show, and that's shown here in the 2016 column. In the ET scenario, the distance travelled by passenger cars more than doubles. Um, by 2040, shown by the green bar, largely driven by hundreds of millions of families in the developing world being able to afford their first car. But the impact on oil demand is largely offset by tightening vehicle efficiency standards, shown by those combined yellow and red block in the middle there. In addition, the increase in shared mobility powered by electric cars further crowds out the demand for liquid fuels, shown here in blue. The net result is that in the ET scenario, despite the distance travelled by cars more than doubling over the next 25 years, the amount of liquid fuels used by cars is essentially unchanged. Now, the eagle-eyed among you would have spotted that electric cars enter this chart twice, once via their shared mobility effect in terms of the intensity, and once in terms of the tightening um, in the vehicle efficiency standard in the red bar there. We just discussed the role of electric cars in shared mobility, reflecting that intensity effect. That's the blue bit. In terms of the role of electric cars within the vehicle efficiency standard, this reflects the increasing number of EVs. As vehicle efficiency standards tighten around the world, car manufacturers can meet these standards by in one of three ways. They can sell a greater proportion of small conventional cars rather than big conventional cars. They can undertake investments in general efficiency improvements, such as more general hybridization or light weighting. Or they can sell a greater share of electric cars. 
Hence the role of electric cars, the number of electric cars, as part of that tightening vehicle efficiency standard. But there's an important point to note here. There's a key interaction between the number of, of electric cars sold and the other forms of vehicle efficiency, which I'm not sure is always fully appreciated by some of the analyses I read outside. In practice, car manufacturers will sell uh, electric cars for a variety of reasons other than simply meeting their vehicle efficiency standards, such as responding to customer demands or as part of a long-term strategy. But for a given vehicle efficiency standard, if a, if a car manufacturer does sell a greater proportion of EVs, it means they can invest less in the other two types of efficiencies and still hit the overall efficiency standard. As such, without any change to efficiency standards, the impact of oil demand of simply selling more EVs would tend to be largely offset by smaller gains in the other types of efficiency. For those of you who like to think in graphical terms, global vehicle efficiency standards define the size of the combined yellow and red block. If, for whatever reason, car manufacturers sell more EVs, the size of the red block increases, this is likely to be offset by the yellow block getting correspondingly smaller as less investments are made in other types of vehicle efficiencies. As such, in the ET scenario, the main impact of electric cars on liquid fuels used by cars in net terms comes via the intensity with which they are used and their interaction with shared mobility, the blue bar, reducing oil demand by around 2 million barrels a day. The final issue I want to consider in terms of electric cars is a possibility that regulatory changes or technological improvements cause electric cars to grow far more quickly than assumed in the ET scenario. Since many of us met in this room a year ago, a number of countries have announced potential bans on internal combustion engines. Car manufacturers have set more and more ambitious targets for electrification. Suppose we're just miles behind the curve here. So to explore this possibility, Consider a scenario in which there's a worldwide ban on the sale of all internal combustion engine cars, ICE, ICE cars, by 2040. So a global worldwide ban on the sales of all ICE cars from 2040. We call this the ICE ban scenario. In fact, the scenario assumes that sales of plug-in hybrids are also banned. So the correct name should really be the ICE and plug-in hybrids ban scenario. <laughs> But that wasn't quite as snappy, so we start with ice ban scenario. For those of you who don't follow this area closely, this type of ban would be far more stringent than any potential ban any country has announced so far, and we've, we've applied it across the entire world, from Delhi to Doncaster, Moscow to Montana. So I think it's fair to say this is a fairly challenging scenario. The impact of the ice ban is shown here on the green line, with sales of battery electric cars as a share of total car sales reaching 30% by 2030, two-thirds by 2035, 100% by 2040. As a result, electricity powers around two-thirds of passenger cars um, VKMs in 2040, shown here on the right, two-thirds um, in, in the ice band scenario compared to just one-third um, in the evolving transition scenario. 
For those of you scratching your heads at this point thinking, well, why don't electric cars account for all passenger car VKMs in 2040? That's because some, some conventional cars sold before 2040 would still exist and still be um, in use. In terms of the impact of the ice band scenario on oil demand, as we discussed, oh, as we discussed a moment ago, it depends heavily on the extent to which vehicle efficiency standards are altered and hence how big the offset is with other forms of efficiency. If we assume that vehicle efficiency standards are tightened by a corresponding amount, such that there is no offset at all with other forms of efficiency, so you get the biggest possible effect on oil demand, oil demand in 2040 would be around 10 million barrels a day lower than, the, than in the ET scenario. The ice ban roughly halves the use of oil used by passenger cars by 2040. Now, that's obviously a fairly sizable reduction in oil demand. But even in this ice ban scenario, the level of demand in 2040 is higher than it is today, at around 100 million barrels a day. The suggestion that the rapid growth in electric cars will cause oil demand to collapse just isn't supported by the basic arithmetic, even with really rapid growth. Perhaps even more striking is the impact on carbon emissions. I'll come back to the details of this chart um, in a moment when considering the question on, on carbon. But just briefly, the blue line here shows carbon emissions in the ET scenario, which increased by almost 10% by 2040. That's much higher than the almost 50% fall in carbon emissions thought necessary to achieve the Paris Climate Goals, shown here in orange, um, by the even faster transition scenario. So how much difference does the ice band make in terms of closing that gap? Almost none. Carbon emissions in the ice band scenario increased by around 7% compared with 10% in the ET scenario. And this is despite assuming that all the electricity needed to power the additional electric cars is produced by renewables and so doesn't generate any additional carbon emissions. The simple point is that although electric cars may bring important benefits in terms of urban air quality, reducing oil demand by 10 million barrels a day, although welcome, doesn't really move the dial in terms of carbon challenge. And I'll come back to what really does move the dial uh, a little later. I'm sorry, that was an extraordinarily long answer to my first question. At this point, you all think, oh my goodness. Um, um, just to briefly recap, the short answer is I think it has moved on um, quite a bit. I promise I won't try and summarise again everything I just went through, but, but perhaps just to highlight three points. The penetration of electricity in the car market depends on both the number of EVs and the intensity with which they are used. In terms of intensity, autonomy is a potential game changer and the potential impact on EVs on oil demand over the next 20, 30, 20 or 30 years, even with really rapid growth, looks relatively modest. Enough on EVs. We turn back to my five questions, and I do, I promise my answers to the other questions will all be a lot shorter. In terms of the second question, when is oil demand likely to stop growing? The very short answer is, it all depends. <laughs> if we flesh that out a little bit and start with the evolving transition scenario, the demand for oil and other liquid fuels grows over much of the outlook, 
increasing by around 13 million barrels a day to reach 109 by 2040. But as you can see from this chart on the right here, the pace of that, of that growth gradually fades over the outlook, with liquid fuel demand declining over the final five years. This slowing growth largely reflects the fading stimulus from the transport sector shown by the blue bar here. As I mentioned earlier, global transport demand more than doubles in the ET scenario, but the impact of this on energy demand is largely offset by accelerating gains in efficiency. The other scenarios considered in the outlook which have significantly different profiles for, for oil demand are all focused around more aggressive tightening in environment and climate policies, and so all point to an earlier peaking in oil demand. The ice ban that we just talked about and two faster transition scenarios, which I will come back to, the faster transition scenario in dark green and the even faster transition scenario in orange. In the ice ban scenario, the demand for liquids starts to fall in the early 2030s. And in the even faster transition scenario, which, as I just mentioned, is broadly consistent with meeting the Paris climate goals, oil demand starts to fall in the late 2020s. Just to highlight a couple of points from this chart. First, I don't think you should conclude from this chart that the risks to oil demand are all skewed to the downside relative to the ET scenario. As I, as I said, the alternative scenarios we focused on in this year's outlook are all focused around more stringent climate and environment policies, hence this downside skew. But if, say, efficiency of new vehicles improved at the same pace as the past 15 years, rather than significantly faster as assumed in the ET scenario, demand for liquid fuels would be going well into the 2040s. There's uncertainty either side of the ET scenario. Second, it's important to keep this peaking in oil demand in perspective. Even in the even faster transition scenario, consistent with a sharp fall in carbon emissions, liquid fuel demand is close to 85 million barrels a day in 2040. More plateau than peak. Indeed, to put that into perspective, this line shows a level of potential oil supply if the world was to stop investing in new oil production today and existing production declined at an average annual decline rate of around 3% or, uh, 3 a year. And you see, this big and widening gap between potential supply and any of these demand profile tells, tells us that even in a scenario consistent with meeting the Paris climate goals, such as the orange line there, the world is likely to need significant levels of new investment in oil production for many years to come. Turning briefly to the, to the question of where this oil product, production will come from, in the ET scenario, much of the initial growth in oil demand is met by increases in US tight oil. And as US tight oil starts to flatten off in the, in the early 2030s, the baton of growth is then handed to OPEC members. In particular, OPEC members are assumed to gradually diversify their economies, reducing their dependency on oil, allowing them to adopt a more competitive strategy of increasing their market share. A key uncertainty when thinking about the precise split between US tight oil and OPEC is the potential for US tight oil to keep growing. In the ET scenario, US tight oil grows by around 5 million barrels a day from current levels 
peaking at close to around 10 million barrels a day in the early 2030s. This is consistent with rigs remaining around current levels, shown here on the right, with rig productivity increasing by around 40% or so. But there's significant uncertainty concerning both the pace and duration of tight oil growth, depending on the availability of finance and other inputs required to support rapid expansion in the short run, the pace, and over the longer, the longer run, the total volume of resources that can be economically extracted, the longer run duration of that growth. One possibility shown by this early peak scenario is that the availability of finance and resources allows a more rapid expansion in production without peaking around 12 million barrels a day in the mid-2020s. <coughs> but if overall production is the same as in the ET scenario, of around 70 billion barrels um, produced by 2040, this would then be followed by a more rapid decline. So this is purely a timing issue here, rather than telling us anything about the underlying resource. Alternatively, if resources were more plentiful, such that total cumulative production is, say, around 50% higher than in the ET scenario, shown here in this greater resource case, this would allow US tight oil to potentially grow to around 15 million barrels a day by 2030 and remain around that level for the rest of the outlook. One point to note here is on this chart on the left, these profiles for the first period of the scenario are all pretty similar. And as a result of which, it may take some time before we get a clear sense of actually what path um, we're on. Is, is title growing rapidly because lots of finance is available, or is title growing rapidly because the underlying resource base is very strong? We won't know for a while. That's all I want to say on oil demand and its implications for supply. If we turn next to the question of just how fast will renewables grow, the starting point here is that we, along I think with more, almost all other forecasters, have been repeatedly surprised by the strength of renewables in recent years, consistently increasing our outlook. To give you one example, although they're not directly comparable, the ET scenario, if I compare the ET scenario with the base case in the 2015 energy outlook, solar energy in 2035 is projected to be over 150% higher as solar costs have fallen far faster than anticipated. Some of that rapid decline in costs stems directly from the pace of technological progress. Some also reflects the interaction with stronger policy support, particularly in China and India, which account for more than half of that upward revision, enabling solar energy to move more quickly down the learning curve. So, have we learned our lesson? Renewable energy is certainly projected to grow rapidly, in the ET scenario, renewables in power are the fastest growing energy source, accounting for over 50% of the increase in power generation, with their share in global power increasing from 7% today to around 25% by 2040, and growth becoming increasingly broad-based, with China and other parts of the developing world taking over from the EU as a main engine of growth. In the ET scenarios, renew, in the ET scenario, renewables gain share in the power sector faster than any energy source in history. The closest parallel being the rapid build-up of nuclear power in the 70s and 80s. But despite that, 
there must be a chance that renewables continue to surprise on the upside. In the ET scenario, subsidies are gradually phased out by the mid-2020s, continuing the, tr the recent trend we have seen with renewable, energies, renewable energy in most parts of the world increasingly able to compete against, uh, against other fuels in the power sector. But what would happen, say, if rather than those subsidies being gradually phased out, government support remained around current levels for the entire outlook? What would happen then? This is shown here in this so-called renewable push scenario. This extra policy support means renewables account for more than 90% of the growth in global power over the outlook, with a share of renewables within power reaching over 40% by 2040, compared with that 25% I just told you about in the ET scenario. So plenty of scope for policy to continue to surprise us to the upside. It's interesting to note that although this policy support reduces carbon intensity in the power sector, the reduction is only around half that achieved in the even faster transition scenario. So this chart shows reductions in carbon intensity. This is, this is an evolving transition scenario. This is a greater reduction in the renewables push. And this is an even greater reduction in that even faster transition scenario. And this smaller impact in the renewables policy here is symptomatic of the diminishing effectiveness of policies focused solely on encouraging renewables reflecting the increasing cost and difficulty of, of dealing with intermittency issues as the share of renewables increases. I think this gets exactly to the point that Bob was talking a moment ago about racing for renewables. In contrast, the high carbon price, prices in the, in the even faster transition scenario, as well as supporting renewables, also encouraged increased coal to gas switching and the large scale deployment of carbon capture and storage and so lead to a fall, far more pronounced fall in, in carbon intensity. I think, Bob, this is exactly the point you're doing. Let's not race renewables, let's try and reduce carbon intensity. There are different ways of, of doing that and more effective ways of doing that. So are we going to continue to be surprised by renewables growth? I hope we've learned our lesson, but I think we should recognise that the outlook for renewables is unusually uncertain. We include some analysis in our main booklet, which you can look at afterwards, comparing our outlook with other external um, forecasts. The growth of renewables in the ET scenario is towards the top end of, that, of the external forecast, so we may draw some comfort from that. But it's striking that the, that the dispersion of views across external outlooks is greater for renewables than for any other energy source. This is an unusually uncertain area depending on both the pace of technological progress and the form and persistence of government support. Watch this space. We turn next to the resilience of natural gas demand. One feature of the energy transition, which almost all commentators agree with in one form or another, is that gas demand is likely to grow pretty robustly over the next <coughs> few years, and certainly more quickly than either oil or coal. Given that broad consensus, if you've got a job like mine, the obvious question to ask is, how could that be wrong? The ET scenario certainly conforms to the consensus view. Natural gas demand is projected to grow robustly by around 1.6% per year, 
reflecting broad-based support across both sectors and regions, helped by growing supplies of liquefied natural gas, LNG, increase, increasing the availability of gas around the globe. Natural gas accounts around a third of the entire increase in global energy demand in the ET scenario. In terms of how this could be wrong, rather than thinking about growth of gas demand in terms of sectors or regions, it's possible to separate the growth profile into two alternative components. First, growth stemming from gas gaining share relative to coal and also relative to oil in transport, which I've called switching, and growth caused by other effects, mainly um, economic growth. As you, as you can see, very roughly, around half of the growth in gas demand in the ET scenario stems from these switching effects, gas gaining share relative to coal, and half due to these other, um, other sources of growth. In terms of this switching effects, some is driven by simple economics. In particular, the increasing availability of low-cost gas in the US and the Middle East, allowing gas to gain share relative to coal. But some of this switching is driven by policy measures, promoting a shift to a lower carbon fuel mix, especially in Asia and the EU. One potential risk to the outlook for gas is that these policy measures fail to materialise, causing coal demand to be stickier, limiting the scope for gas to grow. To get a, potential, uh, to get a sense of the potential impact of that risk, Consider a scenario in which there is no coal to gas switching at all in Asia and the EU, the two key regions in which this policy-induced switching is most pronounced, as well as virtually no um, oil to gas switching in transport anywhere in the world. The growth, the growth of gas in this less gas switching scenario is around 1.1%. So around a third slower than in the ET scenario, but still pretty robust relative to the outlook for either oil or coal. Switching to the other end of the policy spectrum, another downside risk to gas is that climate policies, rather than tightening by less than, than expected, tighten by more. For example, in that renewables push scenario that we just talked, we just thought, where, where government support for renewables stayed a lot higher, the stronger growth of renewables crowds out natural gas from the power sector. So it's an annual gas of growth in gas demand in, in the renewable push scenario um, also slows to around 1%, shown here by the lilac bar. Gas demand is more subdued in the faster transition and even faster transition scenarios, reflecting the impact of more a more comprehensive set of climate policies leading to significant improvements in energy efficiency, as well as providing strong support for renewables. But as you can see here, even in the even faster transition scenario, the level of gas consumed in 2040 is pretty much in line with the level of gas consumed today. So in terms of that question, in terms of the resilience of natural gas, the outlook for gas is exposed to the possibility of climate policies being both less or more stringent than, than assumed in the ET scenario. The growth profile looks relatively resilient to scenarios in which the policy surprise is restricted to particular fuels, such as less coal to gas switching or greater support for renewables.
is more vulnerable to comprehensive set of climate policies, encouraging greater energy efficiency as well as a switch into renewables. But even in that even faster transition case, gas demand in 2040 is similar to current levels. So turning to my fifth and final question, is the transition to a lower carbon energy system happening fast enough? Based on the ET scenario, the clear answer is no. Carbon emissions are projected to increase by around 10% by 2040. Although this growth is far slower than in the past, it falls well short of the almost 50% decline in carbon emissions thought necessary to achieve the Paris climate goals shown here by the even faster transition scenario in orange, which follows the same fall in carbon emissions as the IEA's sustainable development scenario. To remind you, the ET scenario is designed to capture the broad path the global energy system might evolve along if government policies, new technology and social preferences continue to change in a manner and speed seen over the recent past. The clear message from the energy outlook is that to achieve a sharp reduction in carbon emissions, we need a far more decisive break from the past than recent momentum in policy and technology implies. The EFT scenario illustrates one possible configuration of policies and outcomes that brings about such a fall in carbon emissions with a sharp rise in carbon prices operating within the power sector and increasing regulation incentivising more rapid gains in, in, in energy efficiency and fuel switching in industry, transport and buildings. Now, I think it's fair to say we're getting close to the limits of our modelling capabilities with scenarios like this. So I wouldn't want to use this scenario to provide advice about the precise policy mix for bringing about such a transition. Rather, the focus and the outlook is more on what impact such a transition might have on the energy system. Global energy demand continues to grow, but less quickly than in the ET scenario, reflecting more rapid improvements in energy efficiency. As you can see here on the chart on the left, much of the additional um, abatement in, uh, carbon abatement in the EFT scenario takes place in the power sector. The key role played by the power sector in reducing carbon emissions is a pretty common feature across other external scenarios with similar falls in carbon emissions. And this reflects the, the potential effectiveness of carbon pricing in the power sector, where fuels compete side by side against each other, and so comparatively small changes in relative prices can have a big impact on the fuel mix. A great example of this is the example of the carbon price floor introduced here in the UK on reducing coal-fired power generation in recent years. This relates to that turning the dial on carbon emissions I was mentioned earlier. My general approach when talking to officials or politicians is if, is if they really want to make a significant difference to the carbon outlook, we should start by talking about the power sector, then we should talk about the power sector, and if we have time, we should talk a little bit more about the power sector. If you're having conversations with politicians or officials and they want to do this and they're not talking about the power sector, ask them why. In terms of the fuel mix, 
The biggest gainer is renewable energy, which more than accounts for the entire growth in global energy in the EFT scenario, with its share increasing to around a third by 2040. But if, renew if renewables account for around a third of the world's energy needs by 2040, it suggests some other forms of energy needs to account for the other two thirds, even in the case of that much faster transition. <coughs> The majority of this additional, the remaining two-thirds, is provided by oil and gas, shown together here, shown by the green and red bars to the right here, which together provide a little over 40% of the world's energy in 2040. This is less than the 55% or so implied by the ET scenario, but suggests that oil and gas are likely to continue to play a material role in the global energy system over the next 20 or 30 years, even in a transition path consistent with, with the Paris climate goals. I've gone on miles too long. Let me stop and conclude and then throw it open to the questions. And please, for those of you remaining on, on, on the web, please do send in your questions. The global energy system is in transition. Before we throw up our arms in a sort of despair of uncertainty, I think there are some aspects of this transition which we are relatively confident about. Growth in energy demand is likely to be driven by increasing prosperity in fast-growing developing economies. That demand growth is likely to slow as we learn to do more with less. Global energy supplies are likely to be characterised by increasing abundance and diversification. Renewable energy is likely to play an increasingly important role in global energy. Nevertheless, Oil and gas are set to continue to play a central role in the global energy system at least for the next 20 or 30 years. Those features seem pretty robust across many scenarios. But there are other aspects of the energy transition which remain very uncertain. What impact will electric cars and autonomy play in reshaping the transport sector over the next 20 or 30 years? What role will natural gas and renewables play in the transition to a lower carbon energy system? And most important of all, will we achieve the decisive break from the past necessary to bring about a sharp reduction in carbon emissions? There are no simple answers to these questions. All forecasts are wrong. But hopefully this year's energy outlook and the many outlooks to come will help us gradually to understand better the energy we face, the uncertainty we face. Thank you.